Welcome to Let's Review RN. My name is Bryn O'Donnell, and I'm a certified adult and geriatric nurse practitioner. I work as a cardiology APN and function as a visiting professor and clinical instructor for a BSN program. This is an independent production by myself, and I am not representing any educational institution. My goal is to deliver a condensed but robust review on topics primarily discussed in Adult Health 1 and 2 and some pieces of pharmacology of a bachelor degree nursing program. Over the years, I've learned that students have an immense amount of confusion and questions when they leave didactic, which makes applying what they are learning nearly impossible to the clinical setting. I want to break down the basics so that you can continue to build upon your knowledge and put the pieces together. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Let's Review RN. Today, we're going to talk all things hypertension. Before we dive into hypertension, I want to take some time to review the vascular system with you. There are three types of blood vessels in the body, including arteries, veins, and capillaries. Arteries carry oxygenated blood to tissue with the exception of the pulmonary artery, which carries deoxygenated blood to the lungs. However, it does follow the rule that arteries carry blood away from the heart. Veins carry deoxygenated blood back to the heart, with the exception that the pulmonary veins carry oxygenated blood to the left atrium. Arteries and arterioles are made of thick elastic walls that can sustain the pressure of the blood coming from the left ventricle. The elasticity allows for flexibility and recoil to move blood forward. Arterioles are largely controlled by local tissue needs to allow for more vasoconstriction or dilation depending on local O2 and CO2 levels. Capillaries are thin-walled vessels that allow for nutrients and waste exchange at the tissue level and connect the transition of arterial to venules. The venous system is a low-pressure but high-volume system that relies on semilunar valves to promote venous return and prevent backflow of blood. Venous return, or the circulation of deoxygenated blood back to the right side of the heart, is largely affected by different factors, including the compression of veins by skeletal muscles, such as the calves when walking, the ease of arterial blood flow, and opposing pressures from the abdominal and thoracic cavities. Also, the superior vena cava, which returns blood from the head, neck, and arms, anything superiorly positioned to the heart, and the inferior vena cava, which returns blood from the lower extremities, their venous return is also influenced by the pressure in the right side of the heart. Before we transition into hypertension, I want to touch on regulatory systems of the vascular system. The autonomic nervous system, which is comprised of both the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, largely affects the vascular tone. Stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system by activation of the beta-adrenergic receptors, which are receptors for norepinephrine and epinephrine in the heart muscle, react by increasing the heart rate, increasing the pulse conduction through the AV node, and also increase force of atrial ventricular contraction. This is important to note so when we talk about beta blockers as treatment, we understand pharmacodynamics or the action of the drug on the human body. Sympathetic nervous system also affects blood vessels by stimulation of alpha-1 adrenergic receptors located in the vascular smooth muscle, which ultimately results in vasoconstriction. Again, this is important to note when we talk about alpha blockers as a means of pharmacological treatment. In contrast to the sympathetic nervous system, the parasympathetic system is regulated by the vagus nerve, which ultimately slows the heart rate by minimizing the impulses from the SA node 
and therefore reduces signal to the AV node. The parasympathetic nerves have very little input and reaction on the blood vessels. Baroreceptors are stimulated by increased pressure within the arterial system or stretch, which causes vasodilation in response to the amount of fluid. Chemoreceptors, however, respond to increased arterial CO2, also known as hypercapnia, which then causes a change in the respiratory rate and blood pressure response. When defining blood pressure, we are talking about exactly what it sounds like, the pressure of blood that it exerts against the walls of the arteries. The systolic blood pressure is the peak pressure when the ventricles are contracting, and the diastolic blood pressure is the residual pressure in the arteries during diastole or when the ventricles are filling. There are two main influencers on blood pressure, that being cardiac output and systemic vascular resistance. Systemic vascular resistance is the force the left ventricle has to overcome in order to eject blood systemically. In other terms, it's the opposing pressure by the arteries itself that the body has to overcome in order to move blood forward. The most recent information put out by American Heart Association indicated that normal blood pressure was a systolic reading of less than 120 mmHg and diastolic less than 80. An elevated blood pressure reading was considered a systolic reading between 120 to 129 with a diastolic less than 80. Stage 1 hypertension was defined as systolic blood pressure reading between 130 to 139 or diastolic reading of 80 to 89. Ideally, lifestyle modifications are implemented at this point to help control blood pressure. Stage 2 hypertension was defined as systolic blood pressure greater than 140 or a diastolic blood pressure greater than 90. Hypertensive crisis is defined as a stock blood pressure greater than 180 or a diastolic blood pressure reading greater than 120 mmHg. When we talk about hypertension, it's important to identify those patients that are higher risk for developing hypertension. When talking about middle-aged individuals, hypertension is more common in men than in women. After the age 64, hypertension becomes more prevalent in women than men. It has actually been noted that women who take oral contraceptives are two to three times more likely to develop hypertension. Also, if a female patient has a history of preeclampsia, this is an early risk factor for the development of cardiovascular disease later in life. Women over the age of 70 have been found to be harder to manage in terms of their hypertension than women less than 70 years of age. African-Americans have the highest prevalence of hypertension in the world, and they develop hypertension at a younger age than Caucasians. There's actually a higher incidence of hypertension amongst African-American women than men. There's also been known to be a higher death rate resulting from hypertension in African-American population when compared to Caucasians. It is important to note that African-Americans produce less renin and do not respond well to renin-inhibiting drugs such as ACE inhibitors or ARBs, and therefore calcium channel blockers or diuretics provide better blood pressure control, especially when we're talking about monotherapy or single drug use. Another side note about the use of ACE inhibitors in African-American population, they have a higher risk for developing angioedema. Other risk factors for developing primary hypertension include tobacco use, diabetes mellitus, excessive dietary sodium intake, which contributes to the reabsorption of water and high vascular volume, gender, family history of hypertension, obesity, 
we touched on ethnicity and age, but also sedentary lifestyle and high levels of stress can predispose people to hypertension as well as socioeconomic status. Hypertension is also more common among low socioeconomic groups and among the less educated. So let's circle back a little bit and talk about the management of hypertension and the use of ACE inhibitors and ARBs calcium channel blockers, diuretics specifically in the form of thiazide diuretics for first-line treatment, and beta blockade. We could get into the specifics of what drug we should use for first-line agents and for what type of population in this podcast, but really in a BSN program, we really only need to know the basics of what medications are used for antihypertensive treatments, and that's really the extent of it. I do think it's important to touch on the RAS or renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system when talking about blood pressure management. It's important to understand the system so that you can understand the effects that different antihypertensive medications have on the system and the role it plays in managing blood pressure. Renin activates angiotensin 1, which is then converted to angiotensin 2 in the lungs by the enzyme ACE. Angiotensin II then initiates the release of aldosterone, which causes vasoconstriction as well as reabsorption of sodium and water. This is important for patients who have hypertension because if we have increased release of aldosterone or an increased response created by the release of aldosterone, we can have elevated blood pressure greatly because of vasoconstriction and the reabsorption of sodium and water from the RAS system. This is where ACE inhibitors and ARBs come into play for the management of hypertension. ACE inhibitors inhibit the enzyme ACE from converting angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2 and therefore inhibit the release of aldosterone. This reduces vasoconstriction as well as reduces reabsorption of sodium and water. This is why a dry cough is often seen as a side effect of ACE inhibitors because we're blocking the enzyme ACE from converting angiotensin 1 into angiotensin 2, and this occurs at the level of the lungs. ARBs, or also known as angiotensin receptor blockers, inhibit the action of angiotensin 2 from binding to angiotensin 2 receptors, and therefore causes vasodilation by means of blocking the release of aldosterone. Another side note for ACE inhibitors and ARBs is that you want to pay attention to the patient's potassium levels, as these medications can potentiate hyperkalemia. I'm going to take a few more minutes to review pharmacological drugs classes that we haven't covered so far that are also used in the management of hypertension. First being calcium channel blockers, which increase sodium excretion and cause arterial vasodilation by preventing the movement of extracellular calcium into the cell. There's also direct vasodilators, which decrease the blood pressure by directly acting on the vasculature to relax vascular smooth muscle, and reduce systemic vascular resistance. Diuretics are used to promote sodium and water excretion, which ultimately reduces intravascular volume, therefore reducing the vascular response to catecholamines. Alpha-1 adrenergic blockers do just what they say. They block alpha-1 adrenergic receptors, resulting in peripheral vasodilation. Lastly, beta blockers, specifically cardioselective beta blockers, block beta-1 adrenergic receptors, which reduce blood pressure by decreasing cardiac output by lowering the heart. Remember, cardiac output equals stroke volume times heart rate. And if you lower one of those factors, you're going to lower your overall cardiac output. Beta blockers also reduce sympathetic vasoconstrictor tone. For any patient who is diagnosed with either prehypertension or hypertension, 
we need to discuss lifestyle modifications and efforts to control their blood pressure, whether that be in addition to antihypertensive drugs or solely lifestyle modifications. When we think of hypertensive patients and comorbidities, we often think of overweight or obese patients, and therefore we would recommend weight loss. Increased exercise and weight loss is one of the first things we tell patients on how to manage their hypertension with lifestyle changes. Physical activity helps to strengthen your heart, which in turn increases cardiac output with less effort from the heart. It overall reduces systemic vascular resistance, which again is the pressure heart has to overcome during contraction or systole, and it also reduces remaining pressures in the artery during ventricular relaxation. We also recommend quitting smoking for those that do smoke. We know that smoking leads to arteriosclerosis or stiffening of the arteries, which in turn elevates blood pressure. We want to educate our patients on stress reduction or ways to reduce stress, whether in-home or at work, or maybe it's through meditation or doing some enjoyable things like reading a book or quiet time or even a warm bath. We also recommend reduction of alcohol use. And one of the main things we tell patients is to reduce their sodium intake. We do this because the idea that water follows salt. So if we have more sodium in our body, we're going to hold on to more fluid, increasing our intravascular volume and therefore increasing our blood pressure. We talk to patients about the DASH diet, which includes salt substitutes in addition to a diet that is rich in fruits and vegetables as well as whole grains and reduce the amount of dairy. The DASH diet is designed to be a well-balanced way of eating for the general public that will also promote lowering of blood pressure. We've touched on modifiable lifestyle changes that we can make, but we need to touch on things that we can't change that help us identify those at risk for the development of hypertension. Unchangeable risk factors include age, race, family history, gender, as well as those who have prehypertension or at one point had gestational hypertension. From a nursing care standpoint, when we are caring for patients that have hypertension, we want to pay attention to a multitude of factors. Daily weights are important as we use diuretics for the management of hypertension. Input and output is important to pay close attention to, especially if the patient has reduced urinary output effect from the medication, or maybe they're having an increased urinary output, which could predispose them to hypotension. We want to make sure that we're not being just task-oriented and giving patients their blood pressures when they're due. We need to pay attention to the patient and their vital signs before giving them their antihypertensive medications. A lot of antihypertensive medications can cause electrolyte imbalances, and monitoring of these things is important. When we go to take their pulse prior to giving their medication, we need to pay attention to this because beta blockers will ultimately lower their heart rate, and we don't want to give a patient medication that would lower their heart rate if they're already experiencing significant bradycardia. We want to pay attention to a patient who has ischemic episodes such as TIAs or other complications such as coronary artery disease, chronic renal failure, and a history of heart failure or a history of stroke. We also need to be aware of the patient's blood pressure at the time of medication administration. If the patient's hypotensive, we're not going to just give medication because it's due. Parameters for giving the blood pressure medication is often given when the order is written in the hospital, and therefore we need to make sure we're paying attention to those parameters. If a blood pressure is less than, say, 100, and that's the parameter, we're not going to give that medication. So be mindful of your parameters and your patient's blood pressure at time of administration. 
At the end of the day, it's important to understand the effects of hypertension and the damage that it can cause so we know the importance of treating patients who have prehypertension or hypertension. Uncontrolled hypertension can lead to left ventricular hypertrophy or chronic heart disease or ultimately heart failure. It can also lead to renal failure, which can lead to damage to both larger vessels that deliver blood to the kidneys or smaller vessels inside the kidneys. Patients can end up with peripheral vascular disease caused by damage to the vessel wall or even vascular remodeling because of prolonged elevated high blood pressures. Retinopathy can occur, which is when the blood vessels leading to the retina thicken and ultimately restrict blood flow, and this leads to limitations of the retina's function and put pressure on the optic nerve, causing visual problems. Lastly, uncontrolled prolonged hypertension can lead to TIA or stroke. Significantly elevated blood pressures for long periods of time can lead to hemorrhagic strokes due to elevated pressures on the vessel wall, which can cause them to weaken and ultimately rupture. Hypertension is often referred to as a silent killer because it's frequently asymptomatic until it becomes severe enough to cause target organ disease or other complications as we just discussed. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and learning about hypertension. If you have any questions or any other educational needs in regards to cardiovascular system or hypertension, you can reach me at Instagram handle at Let's Review RN. This podcast is for general information review purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or nursing. The use of this information or any materials provided by Let's Review RN are at the user's own risk. This content is not intended to be a substitute for educational teachings through students' educational institutes or organizations.